It's an 87th Precinct podcast side pod, although not unrelated as much as the Star Trek one was to the world of the 87th Precinct. We are here as a, the usual team, me and Steve-O. Hello. And Morgan. Hello. And we are joined by our guest film reviewer slash someone who's been subject to reading the McBain. So. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Steph, who is here, and we'll say hello now. Hello. Steph is someone who has got uh, a lot of involvement with Liverpool DIY cinema, such as the small cinema, and has got a history of sort of looking at and exploring film and using it in different ways. You now work at the museum and you use film with that quite a bit. Yeah, I love it. done media and English in the past where you've presumably used quite a lot of film to teach and talk about stories. And also you do the today's zine, you illustrate and write that as well. And I will put up links to these things, as I do. I like to get illustrators on. So far, our only guest contributors have been illustrators. So that's quite nice, isn't it? That's a little theme it's there. lovely. But the reason for this side pod is that we've watched, but minutes ago, the Kurosawa film High and Low from 1963, which was the first real Ed McBain adaptation to have any impact. It's certainly the most lasting impact that it's had in the cinema. There was films of the first three books, but they were very low budget American films and you can barely get hold of them now and the bits I've seen of them are not that great mm-hmm. and obviously there's a TV series we talk about quite a lot but this is High and Low from 1963 or to give it its proper translated title Heaven and Hell I'm sure we'll get onto the reasons mm-hmm. for that in a little bit I've got a little bit of background information I don't know much about Kurosawa I think I've probably seen Seven Samurai at some point in my life mm-hmm. I don't know what you guys and girls that that was my my first um, first Kurosawa movie. Yeah, I've got as far as reading the Wikipedia page. Oh, <laughs> tremendous research there, Morgan. Well done. Yeah, no, well, I've not watched any prior to this. So. Oh yeah, so I don't think so. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, obviously very influential. I think everyone knows Kurosawa from how he's influenced Western film, probably. Mm-hmm. But certainly, this is the first time I've sat down and watched one in a detailed way. So it was a, adapted from King's Ransom. If you've been listening to the podcast, you'll know we've been threatening to do this for ages since we did the book King's Ransom, which was released a few years before that in 1959. Steph, you read King's Ransom. I did, yes. Before we get into the film, can we sum up your feelings on uh, King's Ransom? Did you enjoy it? What did you think? So um, that was my first uh, Ed McBean um, novel, so I read that um just to kind of get involved in this podcast. Yeah. Um, really enjoyed it, actually. Um, much better writing than I was expecting for the kind of... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of pleased, pleased with that response, but also a bit hurt. <laughs> um, but yeah, really enjoyed it. Um, particularly, I love the kind of scathing, the scathing impression that we were left with of the executives in the shoe company and uh, also... I really kind of liked all of the minor characters. So mm. the um, young man who was involved in the radio shop, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, all the little um, aside characters within the 87th Precinct stories are some of the best bits of the books, the, the real fun moments, which, as Morgan pointed out in the film that we've just watched, that's something that Kurosawa maintains, in mm. fact. Mm. And when we get round to those things, we'll mention it. It's almost like... Uh, he includes oh, some sort of homage. tribute to the mm. way that McBain writes mm. the types of characters he has I mean I don't know from other Kurosawa films whether he has similar characters or whether that's a trope of those things but it felt very much like it mm. 
but yeah, they're things that we really enjoy when you have those characters who are just there for the purpose of entertainment and plot moving forward and because the police have to talk to people other than each other. So you enjoyed it. This is good news. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's still our highest rated one so far out of the books we've done. How many police shields? I believe it is. It? Is, is that true? Uh, 89 police shields. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good number of police shields. Yeah. Well, I wasn't sure if I tried to, uh, you know, get something rated higher. But, oh, right. well, we, okay, we, got, we got close with uh, the last one we did. We did, yeah. A lot of people consider it to be one of the best McBains, certainly one of the best early McBains as well. It's, it is a great story. The film takes a certain amount of it, well, it takes all of it, but uses it for only a certain amount of mm. the film. Mm. But before again, before we get into that, I'll give you a little bit of, of background. So, directed by Kurosawa... Written by Kurosawa and three other people who he collaborated with quite a lot. Mm. Apparently in 2008, it was announced that Martin Scorsese was going to produce a remake of High and Low, having commissioned Ooh. it in 1999 with Mike Nichols writing it. Mike Nichols wrote yeah. The Graduate and Catch-22. So we could pretend Leonardo DiCaprio's <laughs> in it. Yeah, basically. Um. Or he directed those rather than wrote them. The, the mm. writer was going to be David Mamet. Who wrote oh, yeah. Glen Gary, Glen Ross, and Hannibal? Mm. Obviously, very well known for yeah. particularly Glen Gary, Glen Ross. But this is the best bit of this story. The last reference to this I could find was from 2010, where it was rumoured that Chris Rock was taking over writing duties. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that would put a slightly different spin great. on things, wouldn't it? So, Chris Rock could potentially have written. An adaptation of High and Low for Martin Scorsese based on Kurosawa's High and Low, which is based on Ed McBain's King's Ransom. But I could see that, particularly for the second half when there was a lot of comedy involved. Around... A bit more of the, the, the comedic stuff coming in with the, the... Yeah, the relationships between the police officers and, um, yeah, there was a lot of um, comedy kind of cutting, cutting in to kind of take away some of the tension that was involved. Yeah. Which is actually the stuff that, that seemed to me a bit more in keeping with the actual 87 Precinct series, even though none of that was actually drawn directly from the books. Yeah. Um, it's a funny thing I didn't realise, but apparently Chris Rock has written a few films, most of which have been remakes. I didn't know that. Whether they're well thought of or not, I just don't have that information to hand. You know, <laughs> But it was a shock to see that name as, as the last attached to it. But interesting. When was that, 2010? Yeah, well, and nothing, so. I've, I've seen nothing since. It's, it's, he's just taking his time on it, it's going to be a massive. Yeah, well, he's just had a Netflix special out, hasn't he? So, you That's know, it, he's had to take a little bit of time. He might be making it into like a 10-hour TV series. Well, that's, that's probably more likely these yeah. days, I would have thought. Actually, Between 2010 yeah. and now, it's more likely that you'd be trying to commission a, a long-form police mm. TV series, given all the successes. Sky Atlantic or something. And the second yeah. season can be about him recreating his shoe empire. <laughs> and then <laughs> third <laughs> season, you know... Don't if know. nobody knows the story, that's going to sound like one of the... Interna- inter- international <laughs> Shoes. Inter- yeah, International Shoes. That's going to be the name of it. That's very good, actually. But I was glad Rocks. that they kept the shoe... Shoes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was glad they kept the shoe storyline in. It seemed, you know, that was integral to the plot, and uh, it was there. High yeah. and low could uh, apply to shoes as well, <laughs> like a high <laughs> shoe yeah, and a low really shoe. Cool. It works on many, many uh, layers. It's funny, though, when you're researching these things the way I do, which is to a stupid degree of... Well, I'm very tenacious with my research because it's, there's not much out there and there's lots of, lots of things about McBain from years ago. Obviously, things he sort of dropped off because he died in 2005. Oh. 
there's not much published now new in physical form. And so actually finding anything new to talk about is is quite hard. But I did discover when I was looking up about people who've adapted things that the Liverpool filmmaker Terence Davies, who made the documentary of Time and the City, uh, a bunch of other things as well, he was apparently adapting the McBain's 87th Precinct story, He Who Hesitates, mm. which was one from 1965 that we'll get round to in about two years' time on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and that was in uh, 2011. I, f- I found an article in the Liverpool Echo, our local newspaper, and the quote was, although he has temporarily shelved plans for an adaptation of Ed McBain's crime novel, He Who Hesitates, due to lack of interest from financial backers. <sighs> that quote actually comes from James Balland. I said that was from the Echo, but no. I found the first bit of information in the Echo. That quote comes from James Balland, who is a doctor at the University of York, who was yeah. researching stuff to do with Terence Davies. But very strange that a local filmmaker in Liverpool would have been yeah. looking to adapt... He Who Hesitates, which is a very different 87 Precinct book. Yeah, if you could get Chris Rock attached for the script, then maybe that, that would bring the uh, backers in. That would be a very interesting <laughs> combo. Terence Davies and Chris Rock. Together at last. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, no, have to and try the and Precinct see. could be like Wavertree. <laughs> for pretty cool, like. listeners abroad, Wavertree is the suburb of Liverpool that oh, we no. all sort of live in, more or less. <laughs> Somewhere in that vicinity, yeah. About what, what are we, a mile and a half out of town. Could it, yeah, well, yeah. The police stations up on Wavertree Road in that fairly naff building. Be a good setting. Yeah. Would uh, would uh, King live in sort of Wavertree Garden suburb? Well, yeah, maybe actually. Grover Park would be the <laughs> Botanic Gardens or somewhere or. Excellent. Park. I don't know. It's I taking shape. It is. We could probably get older Terence Davies. But he's probably the most. Uh, We'll ask him how much he's... person that we could possibly get hold of. We'll ask him how much he's short of. We might have built up a... Yeah, we'll do it. We'll crowdfund it through the 100 people that possibly listen to this podcast. would <laughs> be great. Anyway, that's the sort of strange information you come across. Mm. That's, that's new information to me, so it's always nice to find something like that. Anyway, let's get into high and low. Mm. Oh, no, I'll tell you what before we do. Steph, because you've read King's Ransom, you get the rather dubious honour of being allowed to award it... Um, these aren't official police shields you're allowed to award here. We're allowed to award the official ones because we have to have them ratified through the machine Kenneth that does all the calculations. He's not working tonight. <laughs> but you are allowed to give an honorary score to it out of 100. How many police shields would you award? King's Ransom by Ed McBain. I suppose without a basis for comparison, it could be a bit tricky. But... <laughs> well, let's put her on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did really enjoy it. I thought the presentation of women left a little bit to be desired. But then well, yes. if I'm thinking about that in comparison with other Ed McBain um, novels, I haven't really got a base of comparison. Yeah, we talked about that quite a lot on our last podcast because it was quite bad in that book. <laughs> Comparatively, King's Ransom's quite good on that. So, yeah, he's, at this period, he's not particularly great in his portrayal of women. This is just a simple fact. Does it get better? Apparently later on. Well, no, it does get later, better later on, yeah. And we discussed in the last podcast about one of the triggers, which was a, a female film critic, uh, book critic, sorry, mm. haranguing him at some <laughs> event somewhere and chasing him down and making fun of him for his rubbish writing of women. It's, I think since that time there was actually there's a, a compilation book that you can get which I've got somewhere called Ed McBain's Ladies which is a collection of his writing on, on women in the 87th Precinct novels yes and there's a follow up 
another one after it's, that as well. Actually, yeah, if it Go, does so, sh- so, yeah. She's buying time, that's all it is, <laughs> to try and calculate the, uh, the score. Well, I think with no basis of comparison, I would give it a safe 70 police badges. That's all right. I think that, you know, yeah. going in it for a first book. And that's fair enough, yeah. Yeah, there we go. Splendid. We'll take that. Yeah, we will, we'll, we will record it in the uh, annals of Heart the 87 Precinct podcast, but they're honorary because they haven't been by Kenneth. <laughs> so now we'll move on to the film. Okay. I very, very much enjoyed it. Uh-huh. An absolutely mm-hmm. amazing film. I, I knew from its reputation, from my little bits of research, that it was very well thought of, as most Kurosawa mm. things are. I mean, I don't really know much about Kurosawa at all as a person or as, as a, what motivated him, other than, obviously, his films are made in Japan about Japanese themes to some extent, although their themes are usually universal, mm. as they particularly are in this one. Do we know anything more about Kurosawa? I think it, it, he was rumoured to... I, I gather, did he bring more of a Western influence into Japanese cinema, perhaps? I think you can certainly see that Western influence in High and Low. Um, certainly a lot of the imagery that was being used was very Western, like that opening scene um, where the young boy, Jun, comes in and uh, is wearing that cowboy hat. Mm. So again, have a, a nod to those uh, spaghetti Westerns. But the spaghetti westerns, in turn, actually, I think, took a lot from Kurosawa's work, didn't they? A fistful of dollars. They, they, they yeah. were actually Sergio Leone was basically forced to give him a, a credit because it's yeah, that rings it, a it's bell. Pretty actually, pretty much a yeah. scene by scene remake of um, I've forgotten what what it's a scene by scene remake of, but one of his, I, I remember hearing. So it's like Western cinema imported to Japan and then exported Definitely again. Definitely loads of influence back and forth. I think um, Star Wars is meant to be massively influenced by by him as well. All yeah. those the, those sort of new school of directors, American directors in the early seventies, definitely took a lot from from from, from him. And I think in Japan, possibly when he's in his earlier career, he was frowned upon a bit by some critics for oh. seeming a bit more Western. Is this like mid-career for him then? High and low. He kind of like starting mm-hmm. to hit his, his peak, I think, yeah. I think he'd done two films before this were, that were considered absolutely amazing. Mm. And he had been doing films for about ten years yeah, before he started, that. He did a bunch of stuff during the war, didn't he? And then, I think, um, yeah. So when was his last, like, 70s? 90s. Oh, 90s. I think. Oh, I, think, I think he was working right until a couple of years before his death. Oh, right. I okay. believe he was sort of fated by all the big-name American directors in mm. the 80s, so he had a bit of a boost to his George, career from Spielberg and people like yeah, that. Yeah, and George Lucas and people funded some of the thing when he was having trouble getting funding in Japan. And he had a couple of ill-fated projects where he actually came over to... America to try oh, and make, right. make movies. And... Okay. So the big breakthrough was uh, Rashomon winning the Venice mm. Film Festival, um, and that was 1951. So this is quite a bit afterwards, yeah. in with it being 1963. So um, he was established. He was internationally celebrated at this point in his career. Was the film before this Yojimbo or, or Yojimbo? I don't know how you pronounce it. Yojimbo. My Jimbo. Like that. And that was, I think, also massively. Uh, popular across the world mm. as well very much sort of he was established by that point and by the time this comes out he's you know a really reliable name and and obviously because this took some very western source material in the 8th and precinct it sort of hit quite well because police 
detective drama, police drama, police procedural had really been a big cultural thing by this point. So mm. it's it really fits in. And I was worried for a while watching this film about how much police procedure we were going to get, mm. how much of the actual process, and you actually end up getting it in bucket loads. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like two films, isn't it? it? Was, I did find that was odd about the structure, because mm. you get the initial bit that's actually closely based on material from the novel. That's Very close, quite, yeah. But it's it's done in a kind of, all in a single, as you say, in a single 50-odd 50, 50 minute scene beautifully composed but almost quite stagey in a way it was definitely very stagey and then you're just like willing them to get out of there aren't you once you get past that scene it's like it explodes and then all of a sudden there's this whole sort of other material that's not drawn from the novel but which feels very much like an Emmett Bain novel that kind of follows on and and the pace like transforms at that point well the pace is uh definitely that in terms of being in two halves but like up and down in the second half as well because you had scenes where they're in the bar where it's obviously really noisy and, and that, but that went very, on for a long time didn't it it felt uh, very american influenced yeah. as well like rock and roll and um a lot of um i assume were gi's yeah um, i, I guess so, that yeah. this is something yeah. i found very interesting because yeah. for a lot of the film i didn't really sort of think about it being a 60s film i thought of it as being mm. black and white obviously but it wasn't possibly because it's set in somewhere that's a slight different culture. Mm. It didn't feel like it was laden down with a lot of the things we'd see from a normal film from 1963 mm. until it got to the bar scene. But even that was quite interesting because it seemed quite modern because it was a mix of different races, nationalities Absolutely, and all sorts yeah. of stuff. And suddenly you've seen all these people interacting and it's not none of it was played as if it was... Oh, here's the rock and roll bit, kids. This is all mm. for you. Perhaps because of the universality of the themes. So, um, I mean, like, really liked how you guys commented in the podcast about how it was very Shakespearean. And we can see that in his actual adaptations of Shakespearean texts. So we've got um, Ran, which is an adaptation of King Lear, and also Throne of Bloods, which my understanding is an adaptation of Macbeth. I think oh, okay. there were contemporary critics who, who kind of said this felt like a, comp- a bit of a companion piece to Throne of Blood almost. Yeah, and you can see that in like you know the ambition of, of uh, the king character, um, who's actually called, is it King Kingo Gondo? Yeah. Which is a uh, you know, fantastic name. Um, but, I mean, he's a self-made man, he's got these humble roots, but uh, then, you know, he's, he's faced with a classic philosophical dilemma, isn't he? You know, it's the the idea of do you, you know, you're on the rail tracks, if you, you know, if you kind of carry on the route that you're going, you're going to hit one, four people. If you turn, you're going to hit one person tied to the tracks. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, he's almost given a decision where suddenly he has no option to do nothing. He's got agency and he suddenly becomes responsible yeah, um, for very... Some way. Yeah. And then in those actions, he has to take on that responsibility and uh, that kind of moral, that moral dilemma that goes with that. So I felt that he was a much more sympathetic character than oh, the um, King character. I, I, the I was going to say, yeah, I think they'd, like, the, the, the book and the movie are both tales about morals, but they're very different ones. Like the, the, the author and the filmmaker have got very different agendas. Yeah, it's true. I think just in terms of of recap on the book, the obvious thing is it's a kidnapping case where someone steals away the child of Douglas King's chauffeur rather than Douglas King's son. 
and the ransom is still demanded anyway, and then King has to make a decision about whether to pay it whilst he's also trying to get control of the shoe company, Granger Shoes in the book, mm. and National Shoes in the film. And then in the book, it plays out in a different way to... Basically, the end of the book isn't in the film. Mm. There's a little a couple of references are made to the paint scraping off the car, which is used for forensic purposes, so that's kept in the film only as a little side mm. note. Mm. There's mention of a toll booth as well, which is in the book and is very important, but in the mm. film, I feel like he felt that I was important to mention it in some way. Yeah. So it's mentioned by, it's twice. It's mentioned once, and then at one point we see the cops go through a toll booth and show the shield. Yeah, and that's almost another nod. It's definitely paying lip service to, 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 to those those bits of the, the book without actually sort of incorporating them in the same way, yeah. But I would say that the film probably does 80% of the book, almost exactly. But without cutting away to the kidnappers. Yes, that's the other thing, isn't it, as well? We've removed that to and fro, which makes it, which would make it really stagey, because it could be a two-set sort of piece mm. with, you know... King's Mansion and the, where the kidnappers are hanging out. Like, if you were doing the book with this, they dispense with that as well because of what comes up in the film later. They do the to and fro towards the end of the film, though, don't mm. they? In a similar way. It's just in the book, it's a lot earlier, isn't it? Yeah, in and, and it's the... not the same characters because mm. by the time we meet the characters in that are in the book, they're dead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which was an absolute shocker. Isn't it? I mean, spoiler policy again, but there's no way we can discuss... E- we try so hard not to spoil the books that we're doing, but... We, we inevitably do. Yeah, if you're listening to this, I'm going to assume that you've watched it and read it. But with, the, with the toll booth, you wonder where, how, what his intentions are when he set off. Was he, was he planning on doing like a faithful... Uh, yes, that's uh, of true. the entire yeah. book, and he just, you know, in its kind of the evolution, of how, just decided to totally... Yeah, the nature of how scripts are written, this mm. might be draft... 18. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. originally started out with, with the whole thing, and, and, and that may just be a remnant of an earlier mm. attempt to make it more like the book, and you know, so that's interesting. Mm. Yeah, you know. But um, even though the structure is very different in the sense that the, um, the villainous characters are kept hidden from us, their presence is felt right from the start uh, in the way that the, uh, the mise en scene creates. Um, you can always see the sort of the low culture, the city yeah, in the, the background. Absolutely, that, that's that's really yeah. The, the, the way the shots get that kind of looking down over the city. Yeah, absolutely. So like with uh, Gondo's mansion at the top of the hill, and then at the bottom, what we can see is you know the hubbub of the city. But then that separation is really there. I think as well in terms of the pace. Um, mm. So you've got a really sparse. Um, Empty, um, minimalistic yeah. um, scene. A modern, modern building as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then as soon as you get into this, into the city, it's just crammed. I've yeah. never seen a film where there's so much in terms of people, objects. You know, it's just crammed yeah. in there. Everything's hot and fast and rammed, and yeah, absolutely. You it's assume a, that's really quite a good realistic portrayal of of, mm. of that bit of. Japan at the time. Yeah, quite possibly, How much yeah. would that have been sets then, do you think? Or do you think a lot of... Yeah. Because the sequence on the train, which is a standalone piece, it's the mm. real big set piece yeah. of, the, of the entire film, that's shot on a train. Yeah. Yeah. There's no way they could have done that differently because they would... If they didn't do it on a train, they'd have had to do it in a studio with back projection. Oh. It would have made it look it like looked... a 19, 1940s Hitchcock film. Mm. 
I think that was probably my favourite favourite bit. It, it was really well, I do, yeah, but it was, it was just so re- really well done. And it then with them, terrific. the filming of them doing the filming themselves. Yeah, on the, 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 the cameraman's eye yeah, was shot from the ca- from behind the camera on the end. Yeah, go, was, going over the bridge, and obviously had the people at the front of the train seeing it. So you got to see it twice, didn't you? When the you know they, they're doing yeah. the. Um, ransom handover yeah. and so you got to see it from the perspective of the people at the front of the train and then obviously a few seconds later the uh, the guy at the yeah, rear so the train's obviously a big vital lifeline to the japanese people and the way those cities are laid out and so that becomes the place where the ransom swap is going to be made rather than drive this car to this place which is very mm. much like every ransom story ever yeah Although obviously um, it makes it a bit different by um, obviously with it being this rich capitalist guy, he's got a phone in his car, which in 1959 is mind blowing. Mm. But the Japanese, they've got phones on a train. Well, so it turns out. That was just amazing. Is? That was just unbelievable. It's like someone getting paged for a phone call while sat on a train. Can you imagine sat on the on the train to McCuncliffe? from Shropshire, somewhere at Shrewsbury or something like that, and you sat there in this rickety train and suddenly a voice comes over the tannoy. Can Stephen Royston please come to the camp because someone's rung up for him? I'll say that train was really quite nice. I mean, considering how long ago this is filmed, the couple of train I got a couple of weeks ago was pretty much of the same standard. <laughs> yeah. So, uh... Yeah, they, they had some good facilities on the, uh, the 1960s JNR, as it turns out. Mm. <laughs> No, it was really good, that bit. It yeah. was yeah, great sequence. Would I be completely wrong if I said, what's cinema verite? What's what? cinema verite? Is that... Don't that? look at me. I'm, <laughs> looking at, I'm trying to think of the term for that sort of true-to-life so type like the, with the, the sort of, like, realistic kind of jerky handheld yeah, camera. Sort of of, so or the handheld camera. Or all the that stuff, like, yeah, it, it felt like that. Which that is, might not be the right term. It might not be the right term, yeah, but well, I, think it, I feel like it might be. I'm going to look it up while you keep talking. I wouldn't have thought you'd have had that many directors adopting handheld techniques. And it's then, such a, it, a striking kind of contrast yeah. from the very carefully kind of composed stuff that's just gone before as well. It's it's a remarkable yeah. um, switch of tone, isn't it? Yep. And it was so much movement as well. There were just so many characters involved in that scene. Mm. Um, I loved all the kind of use of the technology. So we, we've got the trains, we've got the trams, we've got... Um, ships, uh, cars, you know, there's so much movement. Yeah, there was, yeah. Um, yeah, he really used the, uh, the just the, the sort of geography of the, the city as well brilliantly and the fact that it's this this busy port and everything which contributed to the, the I guess, the mix of like different cultures and everything that was there as well. It was, I guess it's the pace and the panic mm, as well, you know, absolutely. of that. The drama of the scene is kind of created by, by all of that. Yeah. Cinema Verite, which I've just looked up and... Um, don't check Wikipedia, I'm reading this from a much more important site. <laughs> it's truthful cinema, it's a style of documentary filmmaking, but I think the, the where it's influential is it combines improvisation with the use of the camera to unveil truth or highlight subjects. Mm. So I think it's more about being natural and yeah. going into... So that becomes quite important in a lot of films to take that approach where it, it appears more natural than staged, and the bit yeah. on the train certainly is Absolutely, that, after yeah. a very much... Theatrical, yeah. Well, like every shot is just like just composed like a painting, really, isn't it? In in the the earlier sequences. Yeah, absolutely. Um, What was I going to say? Oh, about the train as well. Forgot. Oh yes, I know what it was. A year later, the Beatles make a hard day's night. Mm. Now, I'm not suggesting that high and low influence that, but there's an amazing <laughs> sequence with that on a train, and there's bits where they're moving down the corridor, and obviously it's the restrictions of shooting a film on a train because mm. it was an actual train journey. They did no yeah. side projection or stuff. 
And it just sits so similar to see a black and white <laughs> thing where you have to move down the train and it feels like you're following them because the camera's handheld, whereas everything else is very big blocky cameras and very stagey. So that's, that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, probably definitely, a, if, if not a direct influence, definitely an indication of, of where cinema was going at that time, certainly. Yeah. Now, we must talk about, and I want to really... I'm, I'm flying the flag now for the chauffeur whose son is kidnapped. Because in the book, he's very much meek and sort mm. of cowed by his relationship to the man who's got the money who could pay the yeah. ransom for his son. It's exactly the same here, except what we've also got here is layers of deference mm. that society, the Japanese society has to success and yeah. wealth and all those sorts of things. And this poor sod, who's called Aoki in this mm. film... The actor who plays him plays him so well, and he's he's literally makes himself small. He's yeah. deferential. He's, he's pretty much like absolutely crushed all the way through it, and then he, he he doesn't get treated very well by anyone at any point. Even after you know he's gone through this ordeal of his son having been kidnapped, and he's just trying to help. And then because and then because Gondo pays the ransom, Gondo gets all the public. Like plaudits, he's yeah. the hero. Not so everyone's like, "Yay for Gondo, da da ba da," but no one is saying, "Oh, and commiserations, Aoki. This must have been a terrifying thing for Mm-mm. you because he's just a chauffeur." Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. He's on a lower rung. Definitely the, uh, the there's class commentary in both the, the book and the film, but it, it pans out very differently. Let's say it certainly does. There's, there's no, there's certainly no sympathy for, the, not much sympathy for the, uh, the, the struggling people on, on the, on the lower, well, not in the same way for the struggling people on the lower rungs in the movie as there is in, in the book, certainly, and also, yeah, the, the king character comes out a lot better, doesn't he, in, in, in the movie? Definitely. Yeah. Um, the, the police, after an, a rocky start with him, actually seem very keen on him. Yeah. Um. And at no point does the Steve Carell equivalent call him a turd, which I was disappointed about. That's <laughs> yeah. one of my, my well, there's only bits. one little reference, isn't there, to sort of I didn't like him. Mm. Yeah, I wasn't sure about him at first, but <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, he's presented so positively um, at the end. You know, people are saying he's a good boss. They even go and interview workers within mm. the shoe factory who are, you know, singing his praises. Um, and the, I, I'd say, you know, the most heroic characters are the police officers and they're again you know commenting really really positively on this character so i found that really surprising particularly um as you know i've read it in such close succession with reading the the novel itself it seems kind of like in the movie like his honor's been challenged and he's 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 wrestled with that but he's he's really retained that and he's come out a lot more uh, with a lot more honor than than his rivals in the company and it's certainly the, the, the bit where he's he has that final confrontation with his right hand man who's just just leaves in total abject disgrace mm-hmm. uh, without any of the kind of ceremony that that's that everyone else is kind of given. And, well, to use uh, a clumsy cultural euphemism, he actually falls on his sword, doesn't he? Mm. He goes from a position of becoming the really strong leader of, yeah. of a very powerful company to having to make that moral decision to, yeah. to pay the money. And not just pay the money, but be the guy who delivers it and stuff like that. That's it. And he... knows that he's jeopardising his entire life or his entire life's work is the way we'd probably mm. see it, but they say it as his entire life. Yeah. So, yeah, he does that and does it with certainly more dignity than, than Mr. King in the uh, in, in the book manages at any point, really. <laughs> <laughs> but King in the book, it just ends up with him sort of 
just sort of scrabbling around, doesn't it? Basically? Absolutely, yeah. It seems like the situation's not as black and white within Kurosawa's depictions. So, I mean, we have got a man who, I mean, we see that he's somebody who's risen up from, um, you know, he's somebody who's born from humble beginnings and he rises up. So he is somebody who's worked for everything that he has. Mm. And then you've got that kind of question really between responsibility to family and that mm. um, that kind of aspect uh, and then his social responsibility. So it's like what is for him the most important duty, yeah. I suppose. And he does make the decision that it's social responsibility and looking out for... Um, the life of this young boy over the protection of him, his life, his family, his own, um, you know, his own child growing up. So I think that he's painted in a way that's so much more sympathetic. Yeah. Um, and the decision's quick as well. You know, he he makes it overnight. Uh, he isn't... He doesn't have to actually have his wife leave him. <laughs> well, there's an interesting thing. His wife in this is obviously an important part of it. He's, he is married because that's part of... The story and mm. and it, it parallels the book in the sense that she was rich when he when he met her. The same thing happens in the book, mm. but again because of the cultural differences, she has very little to do in mm. this film other than be the Japanese businessman's wife. Yeah. We only see her outside out out of um, traditional costume mm. once in one scene, oh, that's true. and she has little to do well, with, other than a bit of pleading. Yeah, and, I think her her, her and 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 uh, their son do manage to shame him into the decision a little bit, but it's certainly rather less forceful than uh, than Mrs. King in, in in the novel. It's probably because that character type didn't exist in, in that society. Exactly, yeah. You know, the the one in the novel, there's no perhaps no direct equivalent. But I thought she was presented very positively. Um mm, Yes. Oh yeah. Was it Rico Rico Gonda? Yeah. Um, really fantastic um character. So even though she is not kind of fleshed out really, mm. um, she does have force and she does influence that decision. Definitely, yeah. Um and so even though there's a real absence of um female representation within this film, she is quite a positive influence Thanks. in a small in a small she way. It's good because you don't have the other positive female character from the from the novel I guess the the, per, the character who would be the equivalent of that is dead before you in, as we said yeah, before you so the female kidnapper is absent yeah this. she's yeah you never get to I think one of the things that's key key in the, the book is um the sort of juxtaposition between like everyone really wants money but there's the the the, the kidnappers who want money and are desperate to get it in, in one way and then there's King and, and his corporate cronies who are desperate to get money in another way and then this kind of, is one really any better than the other? But isn't, um, isn't but, it significant that their voices are so absent though? Um, so, you know, we are seeing these these uh, characters of the low, uh, essentially, you know, they're presented as low lives. Mm. Um, but, you know, we're not really seeing their perspective. We don't, you know, we see our sort of central villain uh, whose name is Jinjiro. Uh, is it Takuchi? Yeah. Um, yeah, so his character, you know, we only really see him at the end. We barely see his perspective. Um, his perspective mainly is just looking out of his window up at this um, dramatic house on the hill. Yeah, so the, the, the title High and Low, which, as we said before, was a way of translating heaven and hell. The literal high and low comes in different ways, but the main one is that the Gondo house is on a hill on, on a hill literally overlooking 
more or less slums. Yeah. And so that's the high, that's the low, even before you get onto the cultural connotations of that as well. One of my favourite things in this is when, when we finally leave the house and we finally leave the train, you have a shot of this polluted river. Mm. And what's playing is a radio with Schubert's De Forel, The Trout, which yeah. is a, a really it's pastoral a like, tune about fish jumping w- out of water. W- wonderfully <laughs> ironic, this this horrible, grubby w- river and then your reflection of, of, of your villain in it is an amazing sequence, that. It's a very clever choice for the music because it, it's yeah, it's a piano quintet and a song that Schubert wrote, but it is it's lit, it's about the most pastoral water based thing that you could you could choose to have really, and so that was amazing because there's very little music in this film. Very little music. It, it, it's yeah. There's I'll a bit of incidental them. music at the start. There's that theme comes back in, but actually the other music you hear is that bit on the radio, the De Farrell. You hear the rock and roll sort of jazz stuff when they're in the sort of dive areas, mm. and you get... There's very loud, monotonous notes at the end. Yeah, you know, which that's the, the incidental end. music, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's quite s- uncomfortable to yeah. sit through that. It's just... But that's very much Toho sort of sound, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, it's not a million miles away from like the Godzilla soundtrack, oh, yeah. because it would have been their studio and their composers and their musicians, I imagine. Did anyone else notice that it almost seemed like... Um, Gondo's house was soundproofed, so each time that he went to the window and opened, yeah, um, yeah. the windows opened, and the, all the sound was intruding. But, into... but then, otherwise, it's incredibly silent. That, that's pre- pre- presumably a very conscious Except decision to... for the clock. Ah, um, yeah. You know, almost every scene in the house, you have the clock, and at the end, they refer back to it when Gondo, despite his selfless act, if you want to call it that. Well. And despite the recovery of the money at the end, he still has his houses auctioned and taken away from him. Yeah, that was a bit peculiar because I didn't really understand that bit. Because obviously he'd got his fortune back. On most of it anyway, yeah. Yeah, I think possibly he was operating on such fine margins that everything was, you know, everything was in hock, wasn't it? Because he'd remortgaged to get the money. But at the um, end, with the clock, that's the only time that it strikes the hour, isn't it? It's just yeah. doing the quarter chiming all the way through. Mm. And it's the only time calling you time, the clock as well. time on yeah. his existence it's on f- Earth, funny how his the way of dis- life. The more you discuss this, the more you realise how meticulously every sodding little thing it's is. It's almost like he knew what he was doing. I know! Who would have thought? Not just some hack. But it was such a mix of genre. I felt like it was almost in three parts. Um, yeah, it, like, I, thought, I felt like that as well. And it wasn't three parts like a like a three act thing. It was like it could have been three distinct separate episodes of a bigger story, and you could you could have gone away from them for a week mm. and then sat down to watch them like a serial, maybe. And um, particularly in, when um, very close to the end, when they're in the drug den, and the switch is almost oh, it becomes wow. a horror film. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it, did, it felt like a zombie movie. It, it, did, it did, yeah, yeah. It did. It did. <laughs> yeah. So I think this is worth mentioning, is because Gondo was the main focus in the in the start of the film, but then the police, of whom we've seen two or three main ones up to this point, suddenly in the second part, the procedural bit hits, mm. and there's just an amazing sequence. Of, of police procedural stuff in the headquarters where everyone's sweating, it's hot. Yeah. You can see they've got fans on, but there's every police officer available is crammed into this room and they're all being told, asked to stand up and say what they've done about tracing the car or where did the ether come from mm. and all these mm. procedural questions. And I was worried that we were going to just get into a 
three policemen in a room chasing suspects mm. actually the guy with a procedural yeah I felt like that really kind of linked in with the idea of social responsibility um, so at the start you know we're seeing all a focus on the individual um, and it's really condemned you know the way that the national shoe uh, company is presented is just with utter contempt but then as we're moving into the police procedural um, part of the of the film we're seeing uh, everybody's working together it's just a hive of activity yeah. but uh, and it's not a single effort it's not one sort of heroic effort it is everybody working as a collective and that's um, that's McBain as, yeah, as that's much the, as the, the essence of, of the 87th because you do yeah. have a Carella, Steve Carella character mm. but he is the chief detective in yeah. this which is a bit interesting so let's as 87 precinct nerds it's quite hard to try and ascribe he is him, they are there type thing. Because in the book, you get everyone from the detectives department in, from Andy Parker up to Lieutenant Burns, and Corella's in the mm. middle as a secondary detective. In this, the Corella character, it's definitely the Corella character. Oh, absolutely, there's no question. The guy in the, in the decent suit who dresses yeah. well and actually takes control of the situation. Yeah. But then they also have the character of Boson. Boson, uh, Boson's yeah. got to be my own. Yeah, d- d- absolutely. Definitely. Oh, I would say they're the only two that you could uh, yeah. accurately I th- see. I, th- a... I think I might have been clutching at straws to go much further than that. But <laughs> well, yeah, he's definitely a kind of a uh, yeah my character. Yeah, with the bald head and the uh, the the sort of occasional entertaining quip. Perhaps he gets a little bit of of the Andy Parker there. Of, of, of he's a bit of more of a slob. He's not quite so tidy and neat as the chief detective is. You, you'll scare the children and uh, the child. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. The tone was really light though during that part of the film, um, and that's when all the comedy was coming in. Mm. Uh, yeah. But it was so beautiful as well, um, like the interactions with the police and um, all of the imagery of the maps of the city and the inner workings. Yeah, there's it some was... great shots. There's, a, there's a, a, a wonderful shot where you, you go from a car driving on up to a, 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 an overview of the city and then it, it faded to pulling out from a map of the city on the wall of the squad room. Absolutely. Like, That's incredible. There's a delight in the process. Yeah. There totally is. And what's even better is not only do you get this great sort of view of how the police work and how they pull together in this and and what their relationships are, you also get some amazing shirts. Oh, yes, and the they go shirts. undercover. They were fantastic. Terrific shirts. <laughs> they all dress up as milkmen at one point. So they don't really know what was going on. Well, this was Milkman before they go in that this, CD bar. A certain amount of running back to the car and swapping hats and things. It was it was great fun. It was it was quite funny that scene because they were they were going at great lengths to keep like a, a relay of following them around, but they all just kept returning to this car parked <laughs> in the corner of the junction, just <laughs> full of men surrounded some by binoculars or a Milkman's hat. Yeah, so. twenty six detectives crammed into one small car and just keep emerging with like a Hawaiian shirt tied at midway. Oh, that Hawaiian shirt blouse <laughs> thing. Oh. That's what I'm going to wear next time I go to a club. Oh, uncomfortably twisting whilst trying to spot a a drug deal happening. It's amazing. Yeah, it was all yeah, it was all a bit odd that bit, but um, Loved yeah, it. No, it, it was, was good. an amazing scene. And yeah, like yeah. Steph was saying, it was so crammed full of life, crammed full of stuff happening. Mm. And oh, what was wonderful. also amazing is you don't really see any English words or hear any English mm. language until you get towards the sort of real low end of it. I'm doing air speech marks mm. here for low or the hell end which is the 
the music clubs and the places, and that's where you see the names of things like drinks and food mm. written in English, yeah. which obviously tells you that that's a place where visitors come. Yeah, it's I guess again, it's it's a it's a busy port, so that ties in with the, the drug trade thing they've got going on there. So the people from all over the world kind of mi- mi- mingling in this sweaty little dive and well, the be- for their bourbon, which I noticed is two words there bourbon. apparently. Yes. Um, well, there would have been a big American presence post war in, uh, yeah. in Japan for you know duration of the 60s I would think yeah. it's great you do also hear some English words on the radio when they're trying to give the impression that the kidnappers are still alive in their hideout and they've got a radio on at quarter past midnight I believe it is and the announcer says good night music and then or solo mio comes on Hmm. Really, like, gets louder and louder as it goes from being like within the film to being the soundtrack. Yeah, which is an amazing piece of music to have someone captured. Yeah, with some yeah lift music version of Osolomio. <laughs> so that would be the lead song off that film. Really, that's the, that's the yeah. It's incredible use of music for what what little music there is, <laughs> except for obviously the twisting and jiving bit. Well, hmm. actually, which is great. <laughs> I've got some. Oh, I tell you what. How many films are there that are in black and white that have colour used in one sequence to make a point? Probably the most obvious example I would have thought is Schindler's List or Schind- what's it? Yeah, it's List, isn't it? The, yeah, the yeah Ark the Book. Ark the book. Yeah. I've never seen it. You know, which uses. I have, and I'm trying to remember. I think there's a sequence where there's a, a girl in a dress, and it's a red dress or something like that. It's the only colour you see oh, in the entire oh, film. Yeah. And there's something similar in this with the use of colour, which absolutely knocked me sideways. I just did not expect it. No. Yeah, no, it was yeah it's really beautiful. striking that. Yeah. Someone liked to describe it like an excited child did in the film. <laughs> well, it was uh, an image of a, a distant uh, incinerator ch- ch- uh, chimney. Chimney. Um, yeah, it's got this very vivid pink smoke coming out the uh, the top because the uh, the detectives put some powder on the. Bags that hold or hold the money, uh, which will uh, emit pink smoke when burnt, and then we meet the inc- the crackers incinerator oh. operator who's throwing tin cans around in his shack because he, he can't burn tin. Screaming about how tin doesn't burn, yeah, he was, it was yeah. great fun. Yeah, but great the, character. But that was a good scene for like how, like you mentioned about how cluttered it was. That Absolutely was just junk everywhere. Yeah. This dirty, grimy incinerator man. Oh, he was a problem at Bane character as well. Uh, that, uh, he could have, yeah, he, he could he very could easily have been written by him. But well, it was, it was, it was his kind of evidence that leads them to mm. then, you know, get their man very shortly after. Really, you do. Uh, I mean, the only the, I don't suppose it's criticism. I, I'd be a bit dubious that everything would fall into place quite as well as it as it does but if I start taking that line of enquiry the problem would be that every single McBain book would be subject to the same like oh yeah. I can't believe that that bit of evidence led to that but it must in some cases well yeah it's just presumably for the purposes of storytelling sometimes you need the clue to be a lot bigger mm. otherwise we'd have you know another hundred pages of really laborious sort yeah. of That's looking it. through the evidence and following leads you can do a certain amount of that but those. sometimes you need to take that big leap don't you otherwise every mystery novel and every every movie uh, would just plod on. Yeah, yeah. And as McBain always said, you know, coincidence does happen and mm. it does help. Yeah, they get lucky breaks, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> get uh, uh-huh. yeah, big lucky one. It's also a bit like uh, Chekhov's gun, isn't it? Once you've mentioned that powder and ha- made the point, because did they have... Uh, um, well, Gondo. Because he was... He was, he was, he was, he was 
working with the bags, wasn't he? Because he, he was, was using back his, to his roots. back to his roots, using his skills. Which he, well, is, he's reborn a couple of times in this mm. film, isn't he? Which is uh, something once when they get the bags to put the money in, and they have to find a way to conceal these powders that will either make the the water turn a colour mm. if it's dumped, yeah. or it will let off a smell if it's buried, or it will create the smoke make the smoke go pink if it's burned think, and they have to do it so he has to get out of his old bag of tools from when he was an apprentice shoemaker so he's going right back to the factory back floor to his roots yeah to, to help it and at the end he's reborn because he has to start his own company from scratch see I wonder whether at the end there was blame on the Gondo character I mean like I noticed that there were windows being used all the way through, um, like people always looking in and out. Um, yeah, yeah. And then, like, you know, at the end you had that, I suppose, the box of the prison divider. Yeah, so they're in, the, they're in this prison. The prisoner has refused to speak to a priest, but has asked to speak to Mr Gondo. Mm. And so they're sat on either side of a divider. A scene we've seen many times in many films. They've got the little communicator thing and there's a grid window rather than a window rather than a glass window so they're face to face aren't they well there must be a glass window because there's reflections wasn't there there is there's Mm. the reflection and the reflection um like the two men kind of were reflected into each other i think Um, the the, the prisoner's got um a grill on his side to prevent it from getting to the glass okay i thought that was um that was really really interesting because at that point what we're seeing is you know we're seeing the killer kind of completely breaking down Mm. we're not seeing a villain. We're seeing somebody who is at their lowest, yeah, um, just and then psychologically broken by the, whatever the circumstances of his life are, which he doesn't really reveal. Yeah, he just kind of Absolutely. mentions briefly, you, doesn't you, he? Yeah. You know, he's 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 seen some things. So they're not good. There's the absence, really, of his his story. His his whole side of the story's narrative is just not there. But interesting really because you know at that point it's like okay that's that's where we're being left but is there blame for gondo and you know what does he represent we're seeing kind of like power and him up on his you know citadel on the hill Mm. um and then there's always been that divide or maybe it's that sort of awakening really in him where he's come face to face really with a different perspective i think there's definitely some introspection on his part at the end and you can see that in the image where the, the barrier slams down between them and he's just left looking at his reflection um, and also, you see, before we get to that sequence, we stumble across Gondo in the street, don't we? Just stood staring into the window of a shoe shop. Yeah, just looking. looking like a completely, like his world has just collapsed around him. He's in, he's he's gone from the high down to the low, mm. and he's having to start there again. Absolutely. Although they do recover 29 million yen. So, <laughs> you know, a little him. bit easier to start over. But I suspect he won't be buying any houses on hills after that no. was uh, gone up to Very auction. True. Probably, yeah, it, it was kind of suggesting if you're 29 million yen, you still can't afford your clock that's on the mantelpiece. <laughs> it's a very really, nice it was, clock, it was, Stephen. It was a really good uh, clock. So, yeah, that was a bit of a weird aspect to the plot, that, I thought. But anyhow. There's kind of a strange theme of justice, and actually is justice really being served? Well, the, the police is effectively the heroin addict who, who dies as a result of... You know, they've got their man, haven't they? They, 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 they just pretty much try sacrifice and... that heroin addict. Yeah, just it's to, not even referred to. Sure that he gets a murder charge on some... Uh... In fact, they, they pretty much entrap him into, <laughs> into yeah, that well, I mean, so that they can... I, and nobody even... I don't want to speak for us all, but I don't know that much about 1960s Japanese no. police and judicial procedures. Funnily enough, it's well, not in my wheelhouse. Well, but... It happens to be a specialist subject. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, um, it's, it's it's an odd one. But yeah, n- none of the characters like even mention 
remorse. No, and they, they actively say he has to die. We need to get him yeah, we, on, a, we, on a charge yeah. that will get the death sentence. Yeah, it's like we, we can't um, arrest him now because he'll only do 15 years. Uh, and their only motive is that they admire... Um, mm. It's important that justice is served for, for Gondo, so yeah. we've got to... Get his this. money back because his pride's been kind of affected and his career at National Shoes has gone well, belly up. That's like their only motivation, really. It's he's, strange. You he's know. tormented as well, what? you know, uh, with the... I, I suppose with the, the press, um, so the press reporting and how, like, Gondo becomes this hero. So mm. it's a complete... It's a complete failure of his plan, you know. Um, it's There's a quote in the film that's, it is Gondo's turn to laugh at you. So... <laughs> It's um, it just completely fails in every sense, um, and that humiliation that he's trying to, because that was the motivation really. He's trying to humiliate and bring him down from his tower on high, mm. but uh, that is so unsuccessful. Yeah, he ends up actually sort of accidentally redeeming him somewhat from being this sort of relatively ruthless money grabbing kind of character that he they, was. They make a point of the only thing he spent money on as well was the heroin. Yeah. Like, you know, like the, there's nothing worse you could imagine that you could spend money on than that. And that's Of course, the the kidnapper, the baddie, he doesn't actually know anything about Gondo's background, no. so he doesn't know that Gondo's come up from... No. ..from a, not... Well, poverty, whatever it is. He's come from a poor background and built his way up. But he's just seen him as an icon of... of everything that's wrong, yeah. everything you've got that I haven't got. Mm. And it's just amazing the way those things sort of intertwine or parallel or bounce mm. off each other. But yeah, the, but yeah, his character isn't, you know, he's like a trainee doctor, isn't he? He is, yes. So, he, so he's got he, a very you know, positive he, purpose. He's gone after, because mm. doctors go to help people. Well, and you would think he's got a fairly... He goes slowly you up know, staircases so the police can see their scars. Within time, you would think he, he would end up having a fairly affluent life. So, so, yeah, yeah, but his his flat was cold in the winter and quite hot in the summer. Did you not hear? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad they retained the the use of the weather as part of this. Well, actually, yeah, that's a good point. Good, very good point. High and low temperatures as well, because he was always cool in his... Ah. In his house upon the hill as well. Weren't they? That's it. Yeah, they're going on about the air yeah, conditioning and stuff. But yeah, using the weather absolutely because it was very, very apparent in a lot of those shots, wasn't it? Just how much people are struggling in the heat. Well, and... What's his name was mopping his bald head yeah, all the way through the film. Sweaty wasn't cops. He? Sweaty cops. I suppose it's the morality of you know like the individual and how, you know, the message of the film seemed to be that it's not about the individual, it is about the social yeah. um, hmm. benefits. Even like um, Gondo says at one point, uh, is it a crime to think of myself? And it seems like, yes, it is. Because anyone that's done that is now, yeah, going for the chop. Yeah, I, I, maybe that was an, also a cultural tipping point in, in Japan at the time. Maybe that sort of change from... Rebuilding the, very, the country. Rebuilding the yeah. country, moving away from that very deferential sort of... Well, I don't think it was caste-based particularly, was it? It was, mm. more, uh, it was more sort of position in society-based. Mm. And so we can only speculate on that because we don't have the information or the background to say. Mm. But I suspect if you were to read into it, that would probably be a big part of, of why this was so yeah. important at the time. Mm. I suppose like um, post-war thinking about human nature as well, you know, we're seeing this of the ultimate kind of um, 
level of corruption, depravity, you know, the depths of the yeah. negatives about human nature. And well, the only yeah, I suppose if we if we're assuming that the only, that the GIs are the people that we're seeing in mm. the in the clubs in the low sequence of the film, that's the only influence we have of the war that we see explicitly, mm. and that's where all the degradation is and all the dirt and all the the troubles and worries and the the drink, the drugs, all the bad things, yeah. and that's where we see the the only Western characters. Yeah, mm. but they're all having a nice dance. Well, that's true. So in the milkman's outfit, the, mil- the mil- milkman's yeah, day out. Yeah, putting their mil- milkman's hats on, doing the twist, um, buying heroin off a, a hard-faced girl with a massive beehive. God, wasn't it the most long, drawn-out <laughs> buying of drugs you've ever seen? Well, if we could say like, one thing for the modern day over the past day, if we wanted to buy drugs, it'd probably be a lot easier than that. Yeah, there'd be less, a little bit less dancing. twisting involved. <laughs> Yeah, but someone might drive a car down your uh, alleyway and set fire to it. That's also a possibility, but <laughs> but you wouldn't have to listen to Chubby Checker at any point. <laughs> right, well, I'm out. If I can't listen to Chubby Checker, I'm not having drugs. You can take me after the bank. Right, well, we're coming up to uh, the hour mark on this recording Good at Lord. the moment. I'm trying to think if I've got anything else in the notes that's very important to say. I've got Gondo is Reborn. I've got the word pink smoke written in, cir- in a circle. Well, we've, I think we've mentioned all those. Oh, we certainly have. I've also written down the phrase I said whilst we were watching it, which was the dirty bare-chested police squad. <laughs> mm. There was some... Oh, I love their, their disguises. The yeah. Harbour front. Milkman. Ragged man. <laughs> guy in Hawaiian shirt. Those are the three main people you see on the streets. That's true. You can, you can just blend it anywhere in those. Yeah. <laughs> no, having watched that though, it certainly prompts me to want to hunt down some more of his films and watch watch them. Definitely. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's it is absolutely beautifully shot, beautifully acted, and if they'd got someone other than Toshiro Mifune to play the main character, the Gondo character, it might not have worked as well. And he's absolutely uh, brilliant, yeah, just terrific. Like such a, an intense kind of screen presence, isn't he? Really? Yeah, and I, I would like to see him in other things and see mm. how much that translates across the different roles he plays. Mm. Okay, so Steph, anything to add? Anything we've missed here? I'd quite like to talk about Takuchi's character a little bit more. Um, did anybody spot... Um, I mean, didn't you think it was really interesting how he was presented, almost like... I could, I suppose, maybe perhaps see the Western influence in his character. Um, sunglasses. He looked, sunglasses. He looked very Western when he sort of went out and about. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Sunglasses were good because they could use that for reflection. I love it when you get the pinprick reflection of lights in the sunglasses that yeah. makes it look like the, the death stare. Well, when he was hunting down the uh, the girl in the drug den, that was yeah. like quite sinister, really. Mm, and he was just yeah. in the background could just see the reflection on his, his gla- uh, sunglasses... Absolutely, you know, he was, he just wasn't what you would expect in terms of, you know, when I suppose when I started watching the film, that's not what I was expecting to see of the villain. He was a very handsome young man, um, the outfit was fantastic. He did look, you know, he looked fantastic in that white shirt and the mirrored specs. Mm. Um, but, you know, like a real kind of Hollywood bad boy. I'm trying to think what, what was out at the time that might have well, it did, seen that. With a few years after sort of like the, the arrival of like James Dean and Marlon Brando, aren't we? So I'm, I'm guessing that's probably some of that influence in there, maybe. I would, I would say for definite that that is that sort of cool youngster mm. look 
the threat of that as well. Yeah, yeah. Attach it to rock and roll. That's a, yeah. a thing that happens a lot of that time. Definitely this chain-smoking bad boy. Yeah, it's definitely uh, more in the James Dean mould than, say, the Cliff Richard mould. Yeah. I'd love, to see a, I'd love to see a movie with, like, a Cliff Richard-style villain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But maybe the Curse him doing the show right here. <laughs> Driving around in a double-decker bus. <laughs> Why can't we find him? <laughs> maybe the age is significant, though, because, you know, he is a young man. He is yes. kind of, okay. you know, at the prime of his life. And then if we're thinking about Gondo's character, yeah, Gondo's made decisions that have taken him to this kind of rising up in status, which has led him really only to misery and corruption. Whereas, you know, we're seeing... A very different path for this young man, but actually the same misery, the same kind of suffering, but then amplified no and taken further. No, that's true. It's um, yeah. So for all its beauty, it's it's very dark. But oh, yeah, yeah, he's as a as a baddie as well. It's amazing because he's he only does a certain amount of the dirty work, mm. so he still thinks of himself as better than other people. Oh yeah, he thinks mm. he should be rich. You know, he doesn't appreciate that that would make him as miserable or whatever we're supposed to think. So when he gets other people to do his dirty mm-hmm. work, he goes and finds these drug addicts and, and cons them and, and threatens them and is ultimately undone by his unwillingness to get his hands dirty. Yeah. Mm. But he's, yeah, he's, he's amazing. So youth versus age as well is another part of this. There's yeah. lots of high and low, heaven yeah. and hell. Yeah, I mean, they're, 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 they're not subtle juxtapositions, but it all works really well, so... It's like the next generation is doomed to in this place of corruption. Yeah. Um, it's not a hip young thing type film. You know, Hard Day's Night, I'm, I mentioned before, a year later, that's the birth of youth as, or a symbol of the birth of youth as a po- positive and exciting new mm. force. In the 60s, there's not much of that going on here. No, it's pretty much like everyone's doomed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, at no point did any of the cast of Dad's Army turn up. No. Yes. They would have helped, I would have thought. It would have been great if Arthur Lowe came in as the chief of police. Oh, yeah, what a treat. And Wilson. <laughs> Not taking this very seriously, are you, Wilson? Oh, no. Somehow we always managed to crowbar in some reference to uh, British for- comedy series. At least it wasn't the carry-on films this time. For once. For once, indeed. I think we're going to have to wrap up there, because people will spend as long listening to this as they will watching the film. And it is a long film. It's a long film. It's worth worth uh, taking the time, though, definitely. But Actually, I mean, oh, yeah, see, I now want to mention as well the fact that the first section, the, the section based on the book really explicitly, that's very long. Mm. It's a massive chunk of the film. And if I can imagine people watching this and thinking after 40 minutes, oh, this has been in the same room, the same well, characters, I'm going to turn this off. Well, I must and you'd admit, have missed... I must admit, when I was watching that, I was thinking, I can't bloody wait till we get out of this room. But I think that was the entire point of it. It's I, like, I think so. it's... like the kidnapper was trapping him with the power of a telescope. I think it's, de- it's deliberately kind of quite claustrophobic. Yeah, it was. It? It, I think um, it was kind of purposely... Yeah, you realise afterwards, the yeah. while, while you're, while you're uh, watching it, mm. yeah... It's uh, you, you kind of think, what on earth is going on? This film's going to be a good filmmaker, but he's just been in the same set for 50 minutes. <laughs> Daft that. <laughs> and it's made by Toho Studios, who made the Godzilla films. Sadly, no Godzilla. No cameo. crying Godzilla. I assume they maybe cut that out. If you get like the uh, director's cut, then Godzilla does show up for a few minutes at least. <laughs> that would be wonderful. And actually, it's premiere in... I'll give you a little bit of background as our sort of parting thing here. Its premiere in America was at the Toho Cinema, 
Because they bought a cinema in, in New York and showed lots of films out, of which Kurosawa's films were obviously primary mm. sort of content for them. And this was one of the first ones they showed there. Oh, so they owned a cinema, a few cinemas in America, and this is the one. Cool. Good old Toho. Oh. Still making films today. Terrific. Mm. Shall we give it an honorary award of Police Shields uh, as a film? Yes. I think, yeah, because we might end up reviewing other films and we could maybe have like a separate little kind of oh, honorary kind of scoreboard. struggle for... under the com- oh. computational power required we've to got, hold more got than one un- variable at a time. <laughs> we've got Ice, the TV movie, to come up. Well, so, that's another yeah, thing. Be, uh... I found an interview with McBain. It was, I think it was like a CNN interview. I found a transcription of it and it was, <laughs> it was brilliant because it basically went... Most of the adaptations of McBain's stories are shit, <laughs> except for High and Low. And then McBain basically goes, yeah, I'd like someone to make it properly at some point. Please, someone make the 87th Precinct <laughs> properly. And sadly, to this day, they haven't. And we don't know who has the rights. So let's let's go and give this an honorary police shield rating. And I think we'll start with Steve-O this time. Um, well, very good. I would go... 92 Excellent stuff. It's going to be a 9 out of 10 kind of film, isn't it? Yeah, I'm going to over to Steph for her rating of it. Oh, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, 90 police shields from me. That's 92 and 90. I can't remember if I pressed the plus button there. There we go. Because I'm not using Kenneth, I'm using a calculator. Kenneth's not here today, as I explained earlier. I will feed this in later, so all the numbers are kept in the same place. Morgan. Um, Yeah, again, yeah, pretty terrific. I'd, I'd started off with... Some reservations, I'll say, and then it all made sense in the end. So, yeah, I'm going to go for a, a, a 92 as well, I think. Excellent. And I am going to go with... Oh, I'll split the difference. I'll have a 91, I think, on this. It is it's an absolutely superb yeah, film. Definitely give it Even a watch. regardless of my love for the McBain stuff and knowing that as source material, it's, it's just brilliant. It's very much its own thing. Yeah, definitely. So... What do we do at the 80s, Hark the 87th Precinct podcast when we come up with a number like 91.25? Well, you would round yeah, that. Yeah, you would, that's conventional. Yeah. Perhaps that in this com- scenario we round up. Maybe, yeah. Do you know what? Well, let's do that. Let's reverse, let's reverse <laughs> the system and round up to 92 police shields. 92 police shields for Kurosawa's high and low. Unconventional maths sure. I refuse to... Yeah, well, I just, I'm not very good at math, so I like to keep <laughs> things in an entirely ludicrous well, way. We can use the mode, can't we, there? The most frequent... I, I will trust you well, I think it's mo- Or is it modal? That means something to do with music for me. Yeah. That's it. Anyhow... Well, thank you very much, gentlemen, and super special thanks to Steph for coming on here. Oh, and thanks thank for having you. me. Lending some actual note-taking to the proceedings. No. I wrote some notes, but they were... Different techniques are adopted n- normally. Yeah. yeah. And the last thing I've got to say before we go is one word that was mentioned in the film, albeit in Japanese, and I don't... You know, I can't remember what the Japanese word, but I'm going to finish on a particular word after you've said goodbye, steve Goodbye. And Morgan. Fairly well. And Steph. Bye. And for me, it's pantograph. <laughs> <laughs>